0: for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to thank our newest patrons, Katie and Kara. Welcome to the team. We're working on a bunch of new stuff for our patrons including a patron only live stream to celebrate the launch of season 2. Our first episode of season 2 is dropping on Tuesday, March 23rd, and we're celebrating on Friday, March 26th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So, if you want in on that live stream, head on over to patreon.com/podandprejudice. Live streams will be available to our most esteemed state and pod squad level patrons or in other words, our patrons who pay $5 or more. If you're already a patron at that level, we can't wait to see you there. And now, enjoy this week's episode, covering part four of the 2005 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice with our guest, Robin Jordan. We picked the best part. Of this movie to have someone who doesn't like it on the show because <laughs> oh I'm so excited <laughs> this half is buck wild our our former guest loves this movie oh my God. so
1: we're, we're getting some variety and I I think like to be fair to this movie the first half of it is better than the second half yeah
2: I have a friend or she's in our community and so I was watching it yesterday to take notes and stuff and my last time I watched it was when it first got on Netflix and I was like that's how I guess he found me because I was yeah. on Twitter just being like, I hate this fucking movie. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, Why are you watching it again? Because every time you talk about this movie, you hurt my feelings. And I'm like, I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> Can't stand it.
1: Every opinion on this movie is valid. This podcast stance right now is currently like liking the movie with reservations. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs>
0: This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about the second half, finally, of the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice, directed by Joe Wright and starring Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadyen. I am so proud of you. Hopefully Thank we you. got that right. <laughs>
1: I did it wrong every time. We've done this so far. So Well, we are not discussing this movie alone. Uh, we have a thus a very special guest here. We have Robin
0: Jordan. Robin, how's it going?
2: Hi, I'm excited to I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared. But I'm excited to join you.
0: Excited question, Mar? Don't be scared. Yeah, I asked Robin to come on this show because a few months ago she was live-tweeting her experience of watching this movie. And you were the only person who I saw tweeting, like, hate mail towards it. <laughs> so I was really excited to ask you to come on this show and just get a fresh perspective, especially because this half of the movie is absolutely unhinged bonkers absolutely bonkers yeah (laughs) so robin uh why don't you tell our fans a
1: little bit about yourself
2: i am the co-founder of black girls create we're a hub for black nerds and intersectional critical fandom um critical being very important in this moment (laughs) (laughs) and i run our community and i co-host our harry potter podcast wizard team and our doctor who podcast who watch time and relative blackness and space and i angry tweet about I don't. I mostly like tweet love and just like fan casting and like how Dev Patel needs to be Captain Wentworth. Like that is the like the bulk of my Austin tweeting. But I had not watched this movie since I saw it in theaters, and so when it came back on Netflix, I was like, okay, it's been fifteen years. There's no way I can violently hate this movie (laughs) like the same way that I did when I saw it in theaters because I remember coming out of the theater. And just berating my friend. And she was just like, I don't care enough, but I'm sorry. And like <laughs> I just remember like like violently hating this movie. And then I was like, hey, it's been 15 years, time has passed. I do like a lot of people that are in this movie. Everyone loves this movie. Like, I have to give it another shot. And then I still hated it to the point where like <laughs> I live with my eight-year-old cousin and she When she's like, why are you still watching it? Why are you yelling about it? And then she started yelling about it. (laughs) She was like, why are they dressed that way? And I was like, thank you. And so (laughs) that's where I'm at with this movie. Oh,
1: this is going to be so spicy. I'm ready. (laughs) So before we get into this movie in particular, we like to ask a few Austin questions to sort of get our fans oriented to your experiences with Austin. So... The first question is, what are your personal experiences with Jane Austen and her work?
2: I started reading Jane Austen when I was like nine or 10. And it was because I was just a snobby child who wanted to read the classics. And I wanted to be like reading hard stuff. So I read Jane Austen. And then I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I love this. And then I just kept reading it. Um, And Pride and Prejudice was my favorite book for a very long time. And then something happened around, like, college, maybe. And I read Persuasion and I, like, got it. And Persuasion is, like, the best piece of, like, romance. There's, like, it is the height of romance (laughs) and longing. And it, like, mutual pining on a I I love Persuasion so much it hurts.
1: Well... Our next question is, what's your favorite thing in the Austin canon? Which I think you just answered.
2: Persuasion, specifically, my favorite thing is Captain Wentworth in Persuasion, the second time you read Persuasion. Mm. The first time, you don't really get that he's, like, torturing himself. And then you read it again and you're like, oh my God, this is amazing.
0: Oh, I'm so excited
2: for this one. Wow.
0: I'm sensing some themes in the heroes of Austin novels that they're like silently brooding and sad. Is that? Oh my God.
2: <laughs> angst is such a big part of the, like the Austin novels that I think do very well are like the most popular, I guess. I don't know if they're the most popular, but like the ones that are the most loved. I guess, well, Emma, there's not like the same amount of angst, but like the angst, factor is very important in Austin, especially the heroes.
1: Absolutely. And not to go too far into it, but one of my favorite things about Sense and Sensibility, which is my personal favorite, is that the angst just female for a good chunk of the book. <laughs> we love some female angst. It's great. Yes.
2: Mutual pining all around. We love oh, it.
1: Love it. <laughs> so then we have two more questions. One is which Austin character do you identify with the most?
2: Ooh, I'm a Black girl from the suburbs in the, I'm a millennial so I don't know if I identify <laughs> with any of them the most I aspire to be Charlotte Lucas like she's a hero mm, Charlotte is dope and I don't think that people give her enough credit like she said chase a bag she secured her bag and like did what she had to do and I like love that practicality so I aspire but I hate to say this but I might be Marianne <gasps> Ew, I think I'm Marianne yeah,
1: that warms my heart so much. That makes me
2: really sad.
1: <laughs> well, I I personally identify the most with an with an Eleanor Dashwood. So I see
2: Eleanor. That's who you want to be. I'm I'm just like driven by emotion, and logic has no place here. <laughs> and I know that, and I can see it. But that's why I think I'm Marianne too, because Marianne also understands who she is.
1: Oh yes, absolutely. She's yeah. nothing if not quite self aware. <laughs> uh, I love Marianne. I huge Mary stan over here but that is for a different episode of this podcast <laughs> so then the last question before we go into this is do you have any real hot Jane Austen takes like real real hot ones Ooh,
2: um Northanger Abbey sucks like and doesn't suck she's a good writer it's just not a good story I don't care about any of them and oh 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 um what's his name Edwin, the guy from the main character from Mansfield Park, Elliot. No, what is his name? Oh, Edmund. Edmund. Edmund is the worst Jane Austen hero.
0: Oh. You
1: know, I can get behind that. But Molly, don't pay any attention to this. Yeah.
0: I didn't even know that Mansfield Park was a book by Jane Austen, to be honest, before we did this podcast. Persuasion. I had to text Becca a few weeks ago because I was I saw that there was like a movie or or some such. And I was like, is Persuasion an Austen book? And she was like, yes.
2: Yeah. There's only been, I think, I don't quote me, I feel like there's only been two persuasion adaptations and each one Wentworth is really good but the rest of it mm.
1: yeah I, I think it depends what you're looking for in an Austin adaptation but I can't speak to the persuasion ones yet because again it's like one of the only things about Jane Austen I'm not familiar with so we'll get there on the podcast bets.
2: it's just a, it's a very internal book so it's very difficult to adapt because a lot of it is happening internally and so it's hard to like show that
1: right yeah right and on that note I'm more external story, so to speak. (laughs) Pride and Prejudice 2005. 2005. The second half of the movie, which feels so much quicker than the first half of the
2: movie. It really does. They have to pack a lot in a short amount of time. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And this half, like I said, is completely unhinged. So I guess let's just get get right into it. (laughs) We've just left off with Mr. Darcy, proposing in the rain in what is very hot and sexy in a way that that proposal is not in the book. But we talked about it for probably an hour in our last episode. There was a lot to unpack. We did. Yeah. (laughs) Embarrassingly enough. So now Lizzie is walking around pensively in the house and she stares at herself in the mirror and it gets dark and Mr. Darcy appears behind her.
2: Is she in a robe? Is she alone? Is she in her bedroom? Is she in the living room? Why does no one introduce him? Yeah. He just walks
0: in? That's my exact question. Like, what?
2: Basically naked in that time period? Like, she's in her pajamas? In a robe? Standing?
0: Right. They've gone away with all decorum, all social rules that have just been thrown out the window in this book. And at first it was cute. Like, oh, I have to curtsy, but I'm going to be like, annoyed about it like "Eh, I don't really want to curtsy now it's like I'm not even gonna be introduced by a servant I'm just gonna open the door without knocking and this happens several times throughout this half of the movie
2: and I can't I can't it's just it's a very big part of Lizzie's characterization that like she's willful and she is independent but she and Jane are the Bennett sisters who understand social norms social decorum and they like are proper. They are like proper gentlewomen.
1: I think really what this adaptation sort of does away with is the decorum stuff. They try to frame everything the way we see it nowadays to kind of appeal to a modern audience. And again, some of those women's work, but this one is certainly not one of them because it just makes no sense that he just barges in and he's like here's a letter it's like this awkward meeting where she's been avoiding him before in the middle of a garden right yeah like
0: that was such a cute section of the book like oh no uh uh and then he just chases her through the woods in this it's like was he really even there because and robin i've been tracking the moments that feel like a horror film so far <laughs> and this was hardcore one of them he starts talking and then she gasps and turns around and he's disappeared. He's gone. Like a ghost. He's gone. Mr. Darcy was never really there. That's my new headcanon.
2: The first time I watched it, I did like, or the last time I watched it, not this time, but when I watched it for the first time on Netflix, I rewound it like a few times. I was like, is this a dream sequence? I'm very confused. Like where in reality would this happen?
0: Not clear. <laughs> yeah, it was so strange. And this this whole sequence is very much like, My notes say several times, what is the cinematography? Because as she starts reading the letter, they show Darcy riding through the woods. And it looks like, first of all, a scene from Twilight. And second of all, you know those things where it would be spinning and it's like an old game where it would spin and you would watch through the slots and it would look like the image was moving. And it's like that. Stop motion a little. Yeah, it was like stop motion or like when you're on the train in New York at Franklin Street in Manhattan and they have like that really cool mural leading into the station and through the windows it looks like it's like a moving person dancing or something. yeah 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 that's what this looked like but it was like dark and very very twilighty and i was so confused
2: i don't get it
0: and then the letter
1: itself is basically just the wickham thing because the proposal scene he basically does all of the explaining about jane to her face
2: yeah that's also really weird and
1: so instead it's just the wickham thing and again Robin, I, I am someone who enjoys this movie quite a bit, but the thing I think is almost unforgivable about it is how little Wickham is in it and how little he is integral to the plot of this movie. Mm-hmm. And he just like, they, they just kind of skate over it. Like, oh yeah, he's a sexual printer.
2: Yeah, there are, so in my opinion, in Pride and Prejudice, the main villains of Pride and Prejudice are Mr. <laughs> and Mrs. Bennett and George Wickham. And like, I feel like the things that I could, we should have a whole section where I can just like rant about Mr. Bennett. But in this movie in particular, first off, his Canadian accent, because what accent? (laughs) But with Wickham in particular, I read, and this is a thing that I'm trying to parse through because I've read a lot of Pride and Prejudice fanfic over quarantine, but I've always read Wickham and like what happens later with Wickham and Lydia as a response to his relationship with Lizzie. Same. Like, Lizzie doesn't really, like, she believes him at first and then she starts to kind of, like, pull away, especially after this moment where she doesn't call him out, but she definitely is, like, after the Mary King thing, which we don't see in this movie at all, where he is, like, flirting with Lizzie and then he runs after Mary King. And Lizzie is very practical about it. It's like, yeah, I mean, you have to do what you have to do. But because Lizzie is never going to be the kind of person who is going to marry for money, especially or chase money and neglect love and real connection, she starts to pull away and stop, like, buying into all of Wickham's lies and the persona that Wickham puts on. And I've always, like, read his attentions to Lydia as being like, well, I couldn't convince you, but I could convince her.
1: Right. I completely agree with you on that. And you don't
2: get that in this movie.
1: Yeah. that, And it's just got, I mean, Wickham's a melody in this film, which is so weird. I read the whole story as being sort of revolving around Darcy and Wickham to the point where, like, modern adaptations, like Bridget Jones' diary, just focus on the Wick of Darcy and Lizzie plotline of the entire story. Yeah. I, and I do agree that Wickham's got a sort of vindictive edge to him. That is seated under the surface because the two women, two little girls he preys upon, are Lizzie's sister and Darcy's sister, both people who have somehow wronged him or slighted him. So... You know, it does play in. I think it's hilarious though that you hate Mr. and Mrs. Bennett
0: because
1: we on this podcast love them both. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited
0: to hear about your thoughts on my my man Daddy Bennett. Yeah,
2: I was listening to you and I was <laughs> like, oh God, they're gonna hate me. <laughs> no. And also I was like, What so I always say the same cause like in like our Harry Potter podcast, I always say it. it's like we read the same words, but we're not reading the same story because you bring your own. Like, what your experiences and your lens on life really does inform how you read a story. This is true for anything. And, like, hearing you guys talk about the Bennett's, I was like, oh, God, <laughs> we're not reading the
1: same thing. See, that's why we want you on. We love the Bennett's, particularly Molly has a specific uh, sexual affinity for Daddy Bennett.
0: <laughs> I don't understand it myself, but that's what, what it is.
2: I mean, that part I can, I could can kind of allow kind of.
0: You can allow it as far as Donald
1: Sutherland in this one, but it's, it's crazy that she also thinks that about the 1995 version.
2: I can take, I see it more with the 95 version than I do with Sutherland. I hate the costuming. So this doesn't have anything to do with where we are in the book, so, or in the movie. I hate the costuming of this movie so much. I hate the poor Bennetts. They're not poor. Right. I did a lot of research just for, like, coming on here. Just so you guys know. Hold on. Let me flip to my notes. Hell
0: yeah. I okay. Love it.
2: Mr. Bennett. He has an income of 2,000 pounds a year. Mr. Darcy is 10,000 and Bingley is 5,000. They're all... Bingley is middle class, even though he makes more money than Mr. Darcy... Or Mr. Bennet. Bingley is middle class because he comes from trade. His money comes from trade. Mr. Bennet is upper class or upper crust. He's not part of the peerage or the ton, but he is like... He's not a peer, right? He's not like have any royal blood or... He's
1: a gentleman though, right?
2: But he's a gentleman. The reason why it's so important for the Bennet daughters to marry well is because the state is entailed, which means that once he dies, all of the income that that land is generating no longer goes to them. And he didn't do anything to set aside money to make sure that the money that they get from their mother is, is bigger. Like he, they could have done something where they wouldn't have made a ton, right? It's 2,000 pounds £2, a year. But had he lived less lavishly or whatever, lived more frugally and set money aside for each of his daughters they could have had more than what I think they say that they are going to end up inheriting like 50 pounds a year Mm -hmm. or something like that.
1: I see. This is the one thing where uh, you and I disagree on this, Robin, because I actually am not sure how much you could do because uh, fee tales in England were this thing where you didn't actually have control over how you could like pass on your wealth. Yeah. Or any of your your fees or anything. So Daddy Bennett didn't actually have a big capacity to give away any of the inheritance because the way that like they accumulated wealth at the top was making it impossible to sell to new money or anything. And that included in some details, not in, for example, Catherine de Berg's the incapacity to pass it on to female heirs.
2: Right. But the money that comes in from rents and things like that, like the yearly income that they just, the passive yearly income that he gets from being a landowner if they say he brings in 200 pounds a year just from re- the people renting, and Longbourn isn't a large amount of land, but the people on that live on Longbourn and are paying rent, if he gets in 200 pounds a year and he saves 50 of that and splits it four ways, it's not a lot, but it's not nothing, and it would build up. So I'm not saying that they wouldn't have been... It was very important for all of the Bennetts to marry well, but... Every single cent that he brings in from Longbourn while he's alive, they spend. They live like gentlemen.
1: All right, I see what you're saying. Landed gentry. I
2: see what you're saying.
1: Okay, yeah. that I can
2: get behind. They don't look poor. He's not chasing freaking chickens in the house. The pig pig is is not in the house. He doesn't even know what a pig looks like. And, like, the biggest part of who Mr. Bennett is is that he married for lust Woke up one day, realized that everyone surrounding him is silly, and he withdrew. He checked out of life. He spends his time alone, reading, and then when he does, when he's forced to interact with his family, he makes fun of them, because that's the only way he can deal. But they live well. They're not wanting. The fear that Miss Bennett lives with is that once he dies, that's it. The way in which they live is gone, because they don't have anything else, because they didn't set anything aside, and it's entailed. And that's valid. But don't tell me that Lizzie Bennet is walking into Netherfield with her hair looking a mess. Looking like a mountain like, woman. <laughs> I mean, she would because she walked. But, like, wearing this brown muslin, like, his hair, he he's... What? The whole thing is just... Ew, ew. Yeah,
0: Longborn made no sense to me in this movie. And we've talked about this a little bit, but especially after hearing all of that, I was just like, I remember thinking, like, when I started watching this movie, I was like, why are they making them seem so poor? Because, like, they are not. And especially the fact that they're spending their money to live well, like, then they should paint the walls.
2: Right. And the whole point, I think, of that, from my perspective, it's like Austin is writing that your circumstances, and this is why I also... I stand Charlotte Lucas. Like your circumstances are apt to change at any moment if you don't do or if you don't take care. And so there is a very natural like anxiety. And Mrs. Bennett is a mess, but like her anxiety about being thrown into the hedgerows is very realistic.
1: Understandable. Absolutely. It's
2: understandable. And it is very important for them to marry well, because they're going to, if they don't, before Mr. Bennett dies, they're going to have this complete drop-off in the style of living and, like, the lifestyle that they've come accustomed to. And they're not going to know how to deal with it because they've never practiced economy at all. And she's open about it throughout the book. Like, Lizzie or Lydia's out here spending money on ribbons and ugly bonnets that she doesn't need. Meanwhile, she can't afford... Yeah. Lunch for her sisters, which is cut out completely in this movie. But when they go and right. you know when she meets Lizzie after, yeah, yeah, and they they get the she Lizzie. spends money and this whole there's a whole scene about her talking about this ugly bonnet that she didn't need that she thinks is terrible that she's throwing around. And when it comes time to like pay for dinner for food, she has to borrow money from Lizzie.
0: Mm-hmm. They completely cut out that entire plot line. Everything about Lydia being annoying was channeled into her little. <laughs> yeah I was gonna say like
1: in defense of Lydia in this movie she gets zero screen time because again they cut the whole Wickham plot line but I actually think Jenna Malone does decently like capturing her sort of boldness and inability to filter herself and self-centeredness without a lot of screen time for sure
2: for sure yeah I mean I think that like the things I hate about this movie are not the performances except for Donald Sutherland like at least try an accent my dude like come on <laughs> just talking <laughs> Just talking.
0: That's funny. In my notes, I had written. Well, I'll get. I'll say it when we get to that point.
2: But... <laughs> yeah. 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 Sorry to derail.
0: No, no,
1: I no, no. Oh no, no. We, we, we got a lot of. We got a lot of like background up front, but I think that's good because I think it'll be a good setup for the rest of. Also, the... we love to derail. Oh my god, we do. <laughs> this is a big derail podcast. We spent five
0: hours talking about the first time of this movie. Yeah, it was absurd. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that is all. Where were we? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the letter.
2: The letter that doesn't mention Wickham. Oh my God, we are 30 seconds in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, back to the letter. They really simplified the whole Georgiana plotline, which we know they've already simplified Wickham a lot, but they really simplified this down to he said he loved her. When I made it clear he wasn't going to get her inheritance, he disappeared, and that's it. They didn't include any of like the class politics or the family politics or
2: anything. Or just like the length in which Wickham went, to, to get Georgiana, like Mrs. Young, they right. completely don't mention her at all. at all. And like his like inserting himself, like very predatory behavior from Wickham
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. to make
2: Georgiana fall in love with him.
0: Well, because this Wickham looks like he's 15. Like he does not look that much older than Lydia. So they completely took out the predatory nature of this whole Whole relationship, which was like, so then we didn't hate Wickham as much. And that was annoying to me because I love to hate Wickham. (laughs) I just didn't want him to be there. I thought they should have just cut the plot line if they were going to go that far.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with all that. And I think because this story is so focused on just like our romance as opposed to like all the struggles around the romance, it does mute how evil Wickham is in a really big way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And therefore the stakes of Lydia running away with him. Oh, When we get there, I have- We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. So we get back to Longbourn. Jane is back to Longbourn. She's like, I'm fine. Lizzie's like, okay, Jane. Lizzie doesn't tell her anything about what happened at Kent.
2: That bothers me so much. Also, Jane doesn't mention going to see Caroline. Right. Which is very important in like how Jane gets over or is like- She's still hurt and heartbroken, but she's like, oh, you were right. Like, Caroline does not care about me. And I think it breaks her heart a little bit more because she feels like she was being laughed at. Right. Or just taken advantage of.
1: They really add a lot more angst to the Jingli plotline in this by making this all a bit more torture. They make Bingley a little bit more complicit in the whole thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: hmm I wouldn't agree because he's so bouncy. But <laughs> he's so bouncy, but he, he really does, like, I would argue that with, that makes the payoff at the end of the Bingley plotline in this one even better because y- you're rooting for him to turn around and change, which is, you know,
0: right right something
1: he does. But Fair. I think that there's less focus on how Caroline's pulling him away, on how Darcy's pulling him away, and more focus on Jane's pure heartbreak without much, like, breaking up of... The love story between them.
0: Yeah, but they also skipped that entire section in the moment where they had Lizzie's letter when she went to Kent. Like, she was like, by the way, the militia's gone. Jane is gone. Like, we didn't get the letter from Jane. We didn't get to know about any of it at all. And I get that we had to do that for time, but... It was a loss. They could have cut out
2: some of the chickens in the house.
0: Yeah. Exactly. They could have cut out the pig balls. Like, we didn't need the
2: pig balls. We didn't need pig balls.
1: I said that somewhere in here. There was something that happened, and I don't remember, but I'll remember when I look at my notes, saying, like, if this was in here. They had time for this other thing.
0: (laughs) So then Lizzie's in the sitting room and Kitty and Lydia come in and Kitty is screaming and it's just chaos. Kitty's weeping and Mrs. Gardner is there and she's like, let's all go to Brighton. And so we know that like Lydia got invited to Brighton and she's like being super annoying. Like, oh, well, it's because I'm better company. (laughs) And it's different from in the book because in the book, she leaves at the same time as the militia Right? Like, they haven't left yet when she goes to Brighton, and then she goes with them? Yeah,
1: there's a there's a confrontation between Wickham and Lizzie, fueling the fire of, this is a little bit of revenge.
2: Yeah. Lizzie lets him know that she knows that he gave up the living, that he blew through the money, basically.
0: Right. So did they... Put the militia leaving, like, way earlier in this movie then? Or did they move this later? They put the militia leaving earlier.
1: They took Wickham out of the equation. They didn't want to pay that actor anymore for screen time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Oh, okay. They just, the whole timeline, I used to have it, like, when we were doing the episodes on the 95, I was like, I know exactly, like, which letters come where and all of this stuff. And now I've seen this movie so many times that I'm like, I don't know when anything happens anymore. (laughs) So, At this point, Lizzie goes in to beg Daddy Bennett not to let Lydia go. And this is where, in my notes, I asked... (laughs) Now Becca's laughing at me because now we've discussed his accent and how unrealistic it is. But for me, I thought that he would have been great as Dumbledore instead of Michael Gambon. (laughs) And I said... Because Molly and I share a Google Doc of notes. My note there
1: was he would never have played Dumbledore because the Harry Potter movies had this whole thing where they
0: only cast British people. Yes. And what did you respond? And I said, he's not British.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He is Canadian. Yeah. There's not an accent to be seen. And I'm not like, I don't know. I feel like if you... You don't have to have the best accent. You don't have to even have like a strong accent. I feel like I'm American. So like, I don't really even know like the nuances in accents like that. Like the first time I was like, maybe he's trying to do like some Northern accent or something. I don't know, like
1: something like, no, he just sounds like Donald Sutherland. To be fair to Donald Sutherland's choice to barely do an accent. I feel like it is in line with how little Daddy Bennett gives a shit about
2: anything, so well, that's a part about this scene that I hate too. Though it's like they make him seem very like thoughtful and listening to Lizzie um, about Brighton, and he says something like Brighton will help Lydia understand like her place and like help her know that like she's not desirable or she's poor and not desirable or something like that. something like that. Into which it makes it seem like his thought process is I let Lydia go. And she'll recognize like it's not all balls and flirting, and that like outside of a small country town like this, she's not that special. Or you know what I mean. In reality, he just wanted them all to shut up and leave him alone. And it didn't cost him anything for her to go, and that was as far as he thought about it.
1: I think he does joke about it, yeah.
2: And he didn't think like oh she'll be she'll she'll grow or she'll be better. He does say to her to her in the book. I think he said something like you know. She's not, she has nothing to tempt anyone to do anything. But like, attentive father or just anyone with brains would be like, that's even more dangerous because then she's, she will do something stupid and be thrown away easily. You know what I mean? Like, she's just not smart enough to like actually care about her reputation or the reputation of her family. And she can't tempt anyone to marry her. So she'll still do something stupid and end up not being married. Right.
0: When I was really hardcore fangirling over Daddy Bennett, when we were reading the books, a lot of our listeners wrote to me and said, you need to stop because he's a terrible father and he doesn't care what his daughters do and he's the reason that they have all of these problems. And I was like, I see where you're coming from. I do. I think
1: it's a double-edged sword. I think everything that you say, Robin, is totally correct. He is completely negligent with Lydia and Kitty in particular, I would say the other side of that coin is that he does prevent Lizzie from marrying Mr. Collins. Part of it is that Lizzie's his favorite, and that makes him care more about who she marries. But the other part of it is that he does kind of allow his daughters to grow outside of what's expected of them in the time. And so in that way, it's good, but generally... Especially here, it isn't good for Lydia to grow outside of her time period. It definitely hurts her, right.
2: I think though that he's able to do that for Lizzie because he sees Lizzie as a sensible woman with brains and potential. And like he says, like I would hate to see you unhappy in love. But Lydia is so much like his wife that he just sees her as silly and has no capacity to like grow or mature from that. And I think this is why I say the Mr. and Mrs. Bennett are two of the villains in the story for me is because he's very checked out and distant and unattentive father, and she's an indulgent mother. But because of the favorites thing, you have the t- two oldest who have kind of benefited from the balance of those things, right? Like, cause I lo- the thing about Mr. Bennett is he's smart, he's sarcastic, he's hilarious. Like as a friend, I think he's amazing. As a father, he's
1: awful. And he adores his like one daughter.
2: <laughs> yeah, and he adores his one point five. He yeah. adores Jane as well, yeah. but like she doesn't have the biting wit that Lizzie has, and so, but he very much like appreciates and values Lizzie's smart and her wit, and so then thinks that that means that she deserves a happy marriage, and she would not be satisfied married to a fool like Collins. He thinks that Lydia is so dumb. And it's so beyond help that it doesn't matter who she's married to. She's going to end up being Mrs. Bennett. Right. Gossipy and working nerves and flighty and superficial for the rest of her life. But she's 15.
1: And all 15-year-olds are like that. <laughs> right.
2: Right. And, like, if you paid attention and, like, sent her to finishing school or something, I don't know. Like, she could do more. Yes.
0: I agree with that.
2: They just make him so lovable in this movie, if he's not.
1: They do. It's totally intentional. They they definitely try to make the Bennets a more loving family in this version. Yeah. Like, yes, as a part of the story, and it's very noticeable, and it's just, like, tweaks. They just use tweaks to do it, but, like, Mrs. and Mrs. Bennett have a happier marriage. Yeah. The siblings have a, were more of a five unit than a two and two and Mary's alone and forever.
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh, sweet Mary. Uh, sweet, sweet Mary time. in this movie. This happens
2: in like the first part. You guys have already talked about it. But like at the ball at Netherfield when he chastises Mary... He then like goes and comforts her, like goes and seeks her out.
0: I was like, you caused this problem, sir. Yeah, no, he caused that problem. And then he was like, I'm so sorry. I was like, I don't believe you. He doesn't care. No, but they do definitely make them all more lovable, especially Daddy Bennett. The thing is, like when you're watching a movie, it is a problem with translating a book to a movie. You don't want to have an unlikable main character. I was talking with our audio engineer Graham about this because I'm watching Community for the first time.
2: I love Community.
0: And he was saying, like, the reason that this show is so good is because it turns normal television and movies on its head and has a really unlikable main character. Like, we do not need Jeff at all in this show. And I was like, that's so true but most movies aren't bold enough to do that so like they weren't gonna have daddy bennett actively be the worst and also it's donald sutherland which when i first watched this i was like i'm not like this daddy bennett at all and my mom was like are you kidding me that's donald sutherland oh. <laughs> i was like i don't know who donald sutherland is aside from president snow but now i get it he is a handsome man
2: <laughs> that they make him look awful he's got
0: some Great white teeth. He has great yeah. white
2: teeth, though. That's true. Uh,
0: so where where are we? <laughs> we are still in this scene with Daddy Bennett and Lizzie. I wanted to note that he has a bug collection, which is something we've joked about on this show, Mary having a bug collection, and he actually has a dragonfly on a stick. And I was really excited about that. So
1: Listen, that's that's it. We joke a lot about bug collections here. One of my best friends has a a bunch of dead bugs that she like keeps in beautiful glass
0: frames wow yeah not my thing that
2: reminds me of jane Eyre. i just can't (laughs) mr rochester weird dude (laughs) another terrible man
0: yep so then we jump into another room and the gardeners are inviting lizzie to come with them to the peak district which is not a place that they visit in the in the book that's not what it's called in the book right it's
2: the lake district the
0: lake district yes so the peaks, they called it the peak district because we're about to go climb some mountains. Oh, my God. This scene. So but we're not there yet. But <laughs> okay. um, in this scene, they're inviting Lizzie and Mary is like, uh, what are men compared to rocks and mountains? And I love that they kept that in because it's not a line in the book. It's just like a, a thing that Lizzie thinks to herself, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that they gave that to Mary. But I'm pissed that they didn't just invite Mary, too, because she is sitting right there. But nobody invites Mary anywhere. No one likes Mary. I do.
2: She's so preachy. Mary in fanfic, though, is wonderful.
0: Oh, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we say. Like...
1: I feel like Mary is only so preachy because like she's looking for guidance in her life and things to like care about and latch on to and like better herself with because she's not as pretty with her as her sisters, which doesn't work in this one because she is played by a beautiful actress. But there's a certain Mary was born in the wrong time period even more than Lizzie was because Mary would have thrived in the Tumblr era. Oh, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Totally. <laughs> also, she later in this half of the movie, she wears this like apron thing with a cross back and it ties around her waist and I was like oh my god she is a cottagecore lesbian she is I love her
2: there's a lot of Mary fic where she's a lesbian that is literally half our podcast
0: thank god because that's what Jane Austen wrote that's what she intended she slipped her in there <laughs> so glad that the universe agrees
2: I'm, I'm saying there's there's precedent there
0: oh uh, yeah. god <laughs> listeners if you have any particularly good
1: Mary's a lesbian fanfic please send it to us. Truly.
0: Our email is podandprejudice at gmail.com and we will read it. Yes. So, the end of this scene is Lizzie literally crying in bed and she again almost tells Jane everything. She's like, I saw Darcy at Rosings and Jane's like, oh, did he ask about Bingley? And Lizzie's like, no. Blows out the candle dramatically. No, he did not. (laughs) And then that's the end of that scene. Which brings us to my first study question here, which is
1: this part of the book is the most important emotional part for Lizzie. And I wanted to compare Lizzie's emotional state in this movie and the book.
0: Well, Lizzie in this part is obviously distraught. She keeps crying, which I don't recall. So in the book, right after the proposal, she does cry. She's like, oh, I'm so mad. In the movie, she like wanders around like what's happening. Then it's not until she gets back to Longbourn that she starts really ruminating on it, I think. But does she talk to Jane about it in the book? Yes. Yes.
2: So this is probably one of my biggest issues. I understand why it's cut out for time and stuff like that. But in the book and in the 95 miniseries, which is the gold standard, let's be honest. Yes, chef's guest. This is when Lizzie says, before now, I never knew myself. Right. And she starts to, we know, we see Darcy start to like really think about what Lizzie told him in response to that terrible, it's one of my, favorite, it's like the best moment. That first proposal is a thing of beauty.
1: In this podcast we call that proposal get in.
2: <laughs> it is, I get giddy every single time. But we see the ways in which and I'm going to use the '95 because I feel like a lot of people have seen it. Um, the ways in which Darcy is like playing, replaying that in his head and then taking steps to better and like fix those things that she's pointed out to him as why she wouldn't marry him his ungentlemanlike behavior but lizzie also is like reckoning with her prejudice and reckoning with the fact that like oh you're you know wickham did just like tell me this thing that was completely like inappropriate to just like tell a stranger in the first like moment of meeting and i just ate it up because he was charming and handsome and I was already predisposed to not like Darcy. And so I just didn't even think about the fact that like, it's completely like the lack of propriety in telling me this story, the ease in which he is like slandering Darcy and the ways in which it doesn't actually really add up. And in that moment, Lizzie starts to really think about how she's, she tells, you know, in the first half, she's like, when she's at Netherfield, when Jane is sick, like she's like, bragging about the fact that, like, she is a good study of character and she sketches people's characters. And so she has to really, like, reckon with the fact that, like, am I really a good study of character? Like, how many times have I just, like, decided that this is what a person is like and then interacted with them in that fashion? And how many times have I been wrong or how many times could I have been wrong? And I think that's, like, really, really important to her growth because... I mean, she's about to go to Pemberley and see that the dude is loaded in a way that, like, doesn't really, you know, hit when you hear ten thousand a year, but when you see ten thousand a year, you're like, oh, okay. And it's
1: somehow just like weird Cretan statues of him. Yeah, definitely is. <laughs> uh...
2: The statue garden is <laughs> no it's an so much. Issue. We
1: are gonna get there. We are gonna get there.
2: But also, she's seeing like the the biggest part about Darcy is like the ways in which he takes on the responsibilities of being the master of Pemberley and the way in which he takes on the responsibility of being Bingley's friend and helping Bingley move from trade and middle class into upper class and, like, how he knows that that's really important to Bingley and so he's also, like, looking out for him and has a sense of, like, obligation to Bingley and the ways in which he has a sense of obligation to his sister and the other people around him and how that informs him. And, like, the dude has social anxiety. This is true, but he's also a jerk. Like, and that's one thing I don't like about this movie, but a lot of adaptations in general, they lean a lot on like, oh, he's just awkward and he's shy. And yes, he's that, but he also is very prideful. Like there are things that he has to fix within himself that you can't just explain away with like being awkward and shy. But she just sees the pridefulness and doesn't see the ways in which he got there and why he has built up this wall around him. And so then she has to really reckon with that in herself And it's beautiful in the book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's Jennifer Ely does a really good job, I think, in the miniseries. They have more time. I have to be very, like, I have to remind myself to not be so hard on this movie because it's two hours versus six hours. And, but the movie just makes it seem like a very woe is me self pity party. And she has, she gives herself a little bit of that, but the majority of it is her really reckoning with, like, how she moves about the world. And in the first half of this movie in particular, like Keira Knightley's Lizzie is a bitch. Like she, like in the, in the nev- like the way that she talks to Darcy, the way that she like reproaches him, there's like no room for like misinterpreting that she's setting him down. And in the book and in other adaptations, it's like Darcy's like, wait, did I just get insulted? You know what I mean? Like she's right. at least a little, she's more savvy Because she also has, she knows, like, you can't just tell someone of Darcy's consequence. You can't just talk to them in the old way. But, like, she also cares a lot about character and how she's perceived and how other people perceive her. Because that's what she does to other people. She perceives and sketches their character. So she cares a lot about how her character is being perceived as well. I rambled a little bit. But I think that that is, like, something that's
1: important. It's a very good answer. And it totally gets to the heart of, um, I think, why this film is controversial and also where it really departs from the movie. I'm a little bit more forgiving, but I totally agree with you on how this is different than the book. And I actually do think it does do this adaptation a little bit of a discredit, but also wouldn't work in this adaptation because the best part of the book is Lizzie reckoning with how she feels, as you just said. And I do think that here it doesn't work as well because... Darcy isn't a jerk. He's all watered down Darcy. He's just awkward. So here what I see more of this is Lizzie just having a sort of crisis of not being able to push down how she feels anymore as opposed to understanding that this man who she hated actually was just a projection of all this stuff that she had built up herself because of her pride and her prejudice in the title. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah, I think like in this version, this sort of crisis works for Lizzie, but the, the story of the book gives Lizzie this time to really evaluate herself in a way that most book characters don't get the time to do. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. I think something that I'm going to bring up later, but what you both kind of just Brought up, so I'm gonna say it now. Is this adaptation kind of removed the pride from the title and is just prejudiced because one, Darcy is only a little bit of a dick to her at the beginning, and then he's kind of just bumbling and she continually shoots him down. Like maybe she's proud, but later on in the end, when she tells her dad that she loves him, she's like, He's not proud, I was wrong about him, and I was like, Um. He is proud. Like, that's the whole point. You're both proud and you're both prejudiced against each other because of your pride. And they removed that aspect of it, Mm -hmm. which is
2: annoying. I do like, I think, in like, it's after the open public ball. Yeah. Where, and I think this is pulled straight from the book, but she says, like, maybe his pride wouldn't be so offensive if he hadn't wounded my own saying if he hadn't have insulted me or written me off, then maybe I could have forgiven a little bit more, but like he did hurt my pride and that is a big knock against him. The problem though, is that in this part of the movie, it, like you said, I think it's true. Like they discount the pride on his side, but it also makes it feel like she's hard. She was always harboring feelings for him um, that are then just awoken because, oh, I got him wrong. Like, you know, my initial attractions to him are correct, but I just thought that he was someone he isn't. Whereas in the book, I always took it as like this realization then gives her an opening to start to actually think about, like, oh, what would it be like to be with Darcy? Because she wasn't thinking that before. She just hated the man mm-hmm. right and and just dealt with him. But, like, was never thinking, like, oh, what would it be like to be with Darcy? Totally. Totally agree.
0: Hello. It's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster, and together they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love in Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. So we should move on to scene two.
2: Oh, boy. (laughs) Talk for an
0: hour about scene one. I love it. We are an hour into recording.
2: (laughs) This is what happens. Yes. I'm so sorry. It's
0: okay. No, it's excellent. (laughs) We have so many feelings about this movie. So The next scene, first of all, starts with a very odd shot of, like, looking through Lizzie's eyelids at the trees passing overhead in the sunlight. And then we see Lizzie sleeping in the carriage and then we get this sweeping shot of her standing, What's happening? standing on a cliff and her robes are like billowing and she's looking it was like she was looking at the twin sunsets on Tatooine and there was nothing <laughs> happening, just like the music <laughs> swelling and her thinking. And it's pretty. Why
1: is this here? This is exactly what I was talking about. My exact note is why is this scene here <laughs> when the Wickham plot line is so sparse?
0: Right. Yeah. We wasted probably 2 minutes on her standing staring. This reminded me of the scene in the 4th Harry Potter movie where McGonagall teaches Ron how to dance, but then they left out like most of the plot lines of that movie. I was like, we did not need all of this extra stuff. Oh my god. However, it was very pretty to look at.
2: This is one of the things when I'm railing against this movie on Twitter that people are always like, it's beautiful, and I'm like, but why? Some of it right. is stunning. It's not a story about the stunning landscapes of like the midlands like i don't care it doesn't matter where they are she likes to hike yeah cool she's very fond of walking yes yes i know yeah she's a tomboy We know Not like other girls she's a cool girl she's not like other (laughs) girls that's true hashtag
0: not like other girls this movie really leaned into that whole thing the costume
1: designer was even quoted talking about putting lizzie in a tomboy aesthetic and i'm like
0: why it's fine lizzie likes ribbons You know, they all love ribbons in this movie. They fucking love ribbons. (laughs) (laughs) You can be as
1: sharp and witty as a man and still not a tomboy. It's possible. Yeah,
2: (laughs) Yeah, it is definitely possible.
0: So their carriage breaks down and they're in the middle of the woods. Why? 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 And also, and also, so they're under the tree and Lizzie's like, oh, by the way, where are we? Oh, I think we're near Pemberley. Like, You didn't think to bring that up before because in the book like, that was the whole thing it was like, oh, we can't go to the Lake Country. Instead, we're going to go to the place that's five minutes from Pemberley. Do you want to come? And she's like, maybe. Derbyshire. Derbyshire. Derbyshire, right? Yeah, it's Darbyshire. Yeah. That was like, she would have asked before. Also, how do they know they're close to Pemberley at this point? Right. They're in the middle of the woods.
2: Well, in the book, Mrs. Gardner is from Lampton. Right. And she grew up there. Yeah. So that in the book, they're going to go do a tour of the lake country. But then Mr. Gardner's business means that they can't do the full vacation that they want to do. And Mrs. Gardner says, that's OK, as long as we get to go back to Lampton in Derbyshire, And she's like, that's the best place That's like the end-all be-all. It's
1: like a quarantine canceled my trip to Southeast Asia and instead I went on a hike through the woods. Exactly. (laughs) Same thing.
0: But like also cutting out the fact that she grew up there takes out the... Well, first of all, they took out... When we get to Pemberley, we'll talk about it, but they took out the entire scene where he bonds with them. Yeah. And him bonding with Mrs. Gardner was, like, a huge thing for Lizzie to see that, like, oh, he's not a complete asshole. He can be nice to my kind of poor aunt and uncle. Even though they're not poor, they're richer than the Bennetts, but, like, also... They're in trade. Right.
2: It's very confusing. Like, I think that's one of the things that this movie tries to flatten into, like, poor and rich. Like, you're either upper class you're not and it's like that's not quite american yeah yeah it's very american but it's also very modern where even in like modern day britain now it's like it still matters a lot more your class but like not to the same extent but in this time frame it's like mr gardner could have more money than darcy and it wouldn't matter because he has to work for his money and so he's below them and like that's the whole point in i think they also we'll get there with Lady Catherine, but, like, it matters that when Darcy meets the gardeners, they have a connection, and he is treating them without the same. Like, the first time that she meets Darcy, he refuses to dance with anyone. No one is handsome enough to tempt him. Everyone's beneath him. And then at the Netherfield ball, like, her family was misbehaving. <laughs> she And she acknowledges that. But also when, like, Mr. Collins, who she cannot stand, but when Mr. Collins goes up to introduce himself and it's impertinent and a faux pas, he looks at him and then walks away because, like, he wouldn't even deign to talk to someone who is not of his class. Mm -hmm. And that just, like, reinforced to Lizzie, even though she really did agree with him, she was like, this is... yikes. But it reinforced to her that he is so proud that he wouldn't even talk to someone of a different class. And so then meeting the gardeners and how he connects with them talks about that tree. I
0: love the tree thing. Which I
2: love because it's just like, so 1700s like that yeah. big tree.
0: We bonded over a tree and now we're best friends. It's
2: the same way in which I'm like, Oh, I'm from Anaheim. Like, Oh yeah. The like, you know, the park on seventh street, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. Just... But like the fact that he's able to like connect with them and doesn't, and is like very welcoming and very easygoing with them is like, Important. Oh yeah. And also, we should get to it when he
1: should. She's stalking him.
2: Like she's spying on him. When they. Oh
1: yeah. Wait. I think it's time to talk about Pemberley, right?
0: Yeah. We should talk about Pemberley. The 1995 did this part so well, and the gardeners at Pemberley was my favorite episode of that miniseries. And this, they. They they put it all in like 45 seconds and then the gardeners weren't even there and it just...
1: Uh. But like, let's talk about the actual set of Pemberley because it's a mess.
0: Let's go to Pemberley. So first we see like a pack of deer running down a hill with like more deer than I have ever seen in one place. And I live in a place with a lot of deer. So like, I don't even, I don't think that's how they travel. So that was a weird choice. Then we get to Pemberley and I was watching this with the subtitles and when Lizzie sees Pemberley it says laughs ruefully which I really liked because
1: (laughs) that's what she's
0: doing. This house is this house is terrible. (laughs) So Robin to give you context we already
1: shat all over Rosings in this adaptation. Okay good. It's so much worse when it's Pemberley though because Rosings is ridiculous in this adaptation, but is at least supposed to be ostentatious. Yes. Pemberley is supposed to be, like, beautiful and homey and evocative. Of and tasteful. The beautiful mm-hmm. things about Darcy. Like, and it is, like,
0: gold-painted, more frescoes, like, nonsense. So this this Pemberley looks like a museum. Specifically, the style of it reminds me So in Russia, and I may have brought this up before, but in Russia, there is in the Winter Palace, a hallway that is an exact replica of that hallway in the Vatican, I believe. It's a long hallway with a lot of paintings on the sides and all this stuff, but it's like replicated. So it looks like, I mean, it's very pretty, but it feels like it came out of a box. And that's kind of the vibe that I got here. Like, it's it's a replica of a museum. There's a statue hall. Why are there statues, first of all? Why are
2: there statues? Second
0: of all, why are there statues of him?
2: And also, I'm sorry. I'm not like the most romantic. I'm, I'm ace, so I don't get a lot of this stuff anyway. I love, for someone who hates romance, I love romance and stories. But <laughs> I also appreciate aesthetic beauty. Like, that's a big part of my, like, Colin first. Hoo boy, I have stories. But <laughs> if I'm looking at a busk, of Colin Firth versus a painting of Colin Firth, which one is going to get me to be like, oh my God, he's beautiful. It's stone.
0: It doesn't have pupils. No. Also,
1: just like the idea that Mr. Darcy would have a marble statue of
2: himself chilling in his home is ridiculous. He doesn't like to be exposed to ridicule, but sure.
0: Mrs. Reynolds says like he loves it here. I was like, this does not look like him like this whole house is not somewhere that he would be comfortable at all. He doesn't love it there. Mm -mm. No way. It's
2: shocking. It
0: truly is. Also this whole scene where they're walking around in the sculpture garden. This is a very important conversation about his character and how he treats his servants and his sister and how he was growing up. That's just drowned out by music and we're not so we're watching Lizzie, like, touch statues of naked men instead. If you've
1: watched Haunting of Hill House, this is just kind of like the bright side of the coin to Nell's breakdown in
2: the house. <laughs> yeah.
0: Another horror movie <laughs> moment in this.
2: It's also a, like, they really gloss over this part, too. But, like, because they're supposed to be looking at miniatures, she sees Wickham. This is a part of like what you guys are saying about them just kind of erasing Wickham from the plot. Yeah. And then sees the miniature of Darcy and Mrs. Gardner says, is that a lot like him? And then Mrs. Reynolds, the housekeeper, is like, oh, you know him, blah, blah, blah. And like goes in on how great and like she starts to just really lay it on thick about how great Darcy is, which Mrs. Gartner has heard Lizzie's thoughts on Darcy. And she's like, wait, what? And you don't get any of that because there's a lot of music. They're busk. So no, it's not like his, it doesn't look like him because it's stone, it's marble. Right. Um, and you don't get that like sense of, I don't, and I don't even remember if they do it where Mrs. Gardner pulls Lizzie aside and it's like, this doesn't sound like the Darcy that we have heard so much about.
0: It comes up later, but the thing is, so she says that when they're back at the inn, but the only thing that we've heard Lizzie say about him is she says, oh, let's not go to Pemberley. He's so... <laughs> He's so rich. Yeah, (laughs) because the gardeners were cut from
1: the middle part of the film where Lizzie was just swinging around, which is when she talks about how much she hates Darcy. Right. Oh, right, right, right. And so they don't have any context for her hating Darcy. They're just kind of
0: like, oh, yeah, there's a nice house here. Oh, haven't you met the owner? (laughs) (laughs) So then she is standing, staring at the statue and they all walk away and she's like, you can see her like tears welling up in her eyes and she's about to cry because she's so in love with this. Hunk of stone. Just
1: about to fuck the statue.
0: Yeah, ew, ew, ew. (laughs) 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 she looks up and everybody's gone. So she starts wandering through the house alone. I did want to note her dress here. I watched this video. I brought it up before about the costumes in this movie. Abby Cox is the creator. And this dress she mentioned is upcycled, which I thought was a nice touch. You can tell by like the stitching on the back and how the seams are like coming in at a certain way. I don't know anything about costuming, but anyway, that's what she said. So I thought it was cool. I thought I'd bring it up. And then... (laughs) She is looking out the window at the grounds and she hears the theme song trinkling in. And she goes over to the door and she looks out into the the other room and she sees Georgiana playing the piano and then she sees Darcy come into the frame. And then he sees her and she goes and then she runs away. This has been said to that meme that's like, run, and then she runs (laughs) silly. I hated everything about this.
2: Yeah, the thing that I also hate about this part, too, is that she makes it a point early on to make sure that n- they're not in the house. Because not only is it embarrassing to, like, just go into someone's house uninvited, those big houses, had they were open for tours, right? Mm-hmm. So because she knows them, it's already weird to go on, like, a public tour of his house. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's, like, already weird. So even if they were in a good place, even if it wasn't, like, there was no animosity and he proposed and she stomped on his heart, even if that never happened, it would be very weird to go on a public tour of this man's house. But she also knows that, like, the house looks really cool. Um, She loves gardens and lakes and things like that. She loves aesthetics. And so she wants to see it, thinking that she will never get a chance to see it ever again. So she like is very much like they're not home. They're not home. They're not gonna be home. <laughs> There's no chance in them being home. And to just like apparently take this public tour of the house knowing that Georgiana is in residence. What? And then her aunt and uncle just leave her? Where she doesn't have a car. Is she Uber back to the inn? Like <laughs> she walks. <laughs> She's very fond of walking. That was the strangest
0: thing to me. It was that where did they go? And why did they not worry that she disappeared? And just I was bitter because again I really liked the first half of this movie and then they took my favorite part and they just stepped on it.
1: So I actually
0: love this scene not because it's like perfect or well done or anything I just think it's super funny. It's funny. (laughs) No it's so funny. (laughs) I watched it like six times I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Um, Okay so once she runs away and he chases her out first of all where is she going there's no stairs over there she just like stops at the the railing but he chases her out and then I liked this part because they were like talking over each other and it was super awkward and she was like her voice went up like six octaves because she was nervous like I liked the dialogue direction in this scene I just was sad that we didn't get the whole experience although we did still get to see him Meet the gardeners. They have the nice moment the next day, which we'll get to. But like this whole thing was so strange. It was funny, though. I had a good time. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's one of
1: those moments that's not perfect for from a book perspective, but it's just enjoyable from a movie perspective.
2: It's one of the moments where when I read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, I was like, oh, I can't do absurd Austin adaptations because they take it too seriously and this was like the first time I watched it in the theater 15 something years ago was when I was like I can't and like (laughs) I'm like is this a parody (laughs) what it's so absurd that like you can I can see how it's enjoyable now but yeah it's but it's not. I mean,
0: it's like you're watching a horror movie. This is the first scene that is in a lot of these horror movie. We Googled Will found us a lot of videos that are like set to scary music and and I watched them and this is in every single one. And it's because it looks like a horror movie. But in the scene where they're talking outside, I did think that this whole thing fits this Darcy and this Lizzie's relationship it doesn't fit what happens in the book it doesn't fit the actual Lizzie and Darcy relationship that we know but it fits their relationship very well so I wasn't like angry I was just amused but it like because they are so awkward and they are so he is so smitten obviously he's like six three of pure disaster yeah
2: i think it's important to to think about like does this movie make logical movie sense in world like if there was not a pride and prejudice book to look back on yeah. and i think that sometimes it does like in this scene it actually does make in world like movie sense absolutely whereas other parts it feels like they want you to have known the story so that they can just skip over things
0: yes like with wickham or the gardeners
2: yeah, with Wickham in the garden and stuff, it's like, oh, you you know what that is. This book is 200 years old, so you should already know that part. Yeah. And you can fill in the blanks. But this scene, I think you're right, it does. It's very in line with, like, who they are in this movie. But it's also, like, in every adaptation, it's one of my favorite scenes because of the stumbling, bumblingness of it all. And, like, how she's just like, oh, shit, like, I really should not have done that. Like, this was terrible. But it's then immediately ruined. Because where does she go? How did, why did they leave her? They left without her. How did she get back to the inn?
0: It takes her so long to get back that both the gardeners and Darcy beat her back to the inn. Yeah. Like By the time she gets back, they're like eating dinner without her. Like and they'd, they'd
2: already be- seen him. So he got on his horse and went back to the inn and just left her to walk. Did he pass her on the road? They probably passed her on the road. It makes
0: like, no sense. That does not make any in-world sense. That doesn't make any life sense. Like if you go somewhere with someone, you leave with them. That is the first rule. Hmm. Now I'm just remembering, though, in the 1995 version, when she's walking, (laughs) after he gets in the lake and he's walking and he runs into her and he's like, is your family in good health? And how are your sisters? And And is your family in good health?
2: Your parents are
1: well, I take. And all they're both thinking about are just his nipples in that
2: moment. Colin Firth is a freaking international treasure, intergalactic treasure. He deserves the world. Absolutely. And he's perfect. And so... There's also, I really like Matthew McFadden and they did him wrong. Like he just, he couldn't hold, it it was a, it was a large role to step into without Colin Firth, but with Colin Firth there, he was at a very distinct disadvantage.
0: Colin Firth is perfect.
2: He like in this, she's much more bumbling than he is. And he feels like very like self secure. Like it, it might be like he's on home turf and like he knows where he is and he, but he feels much more comfortable and like it's shocked to see her there
1: which is funny because the first half of the film he like can't get a sentence out
2: yeah yeah
0: but he's at he's in his element at Pemberley and that's like that's what the whole Pemberley scene is it's like Darcy feeling relaxed and like being a guy and this this is he's such a disaster he's like uh uh, I know you like to walk um are you staying at (laughs) Lambton. Anyway, so we get back to the inn.
2: How? We don't know.
0: (laughs) How? We don't know. She must have walked. I don't know how far it is. It's like at least five miles, right? So that took her like a while. He's already talked to Mr. and Mrs. Gardner and invited them to dine with him tomorrow. And Mrs. Gardner says that she likes him very much. And he, and she says, "There's something pleasant about his mouth when he speaks, and like twirls her hair—the corner
1: or something." Like that. Yeah, she's like, Whoop. "I mean, we're all a little thirsty for Darcy. Like,
0: he's—he's he's a sight to behold." Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I
1: think he—he he has nice eyes. This movie is just defined by the fact that like pretty much everyone in it is hot. Like Colin Firth is a beautiful man, and Jennifer Ely is a beautiful woman. But across the board, this cast. Is just hot people
2: with really shaggy hair and bad costuming.
1: Their hair is so bad. I'm gonna rephrase this hot people dealing with the 2000s, like the mid 2000s. Sure,
2: <laughs> sure. This is very true. I
0: have to say, Lizzie Bennett's baby hairs on the back of her neck, did you guys notice that they had like trimmed her baby hair so it just looks like bangs but on her neck it's very bad <laughs> oh boy very very bad wow yeah
2: i have it i didn't notice that but that's enough i'm not gonna go back and rewatch it.
0: <laughs> i'll post a picture on twitter i'll
2: look at pictures yeah so i can see so
0: the next day we see georgie playing the piano and when lizzie arrives georgie is so excited she runs up i thought she was gonna hug her but they curtsy to each other very sweet. Yeah, she's
2: so well cast. Bingley's not there.
0: Bingley's not there and Caroline's and not Caroline's there. Caroline's not there. I was kind of glad for it because I'm, I am I'm, i don't care about Caroline Bingley. I never have. So I was like, I don't really need them here.
2: I really love the Caroline Bingley, Lizzie Bennet, like back and forth. But if you're not going to do it all the way, then it's fine that they're not there. The thing I miss about Bingley, though, Which, I guess, goes into, like, how they've just minimized the whole thing. It's like, in this scene, you see that, like, he was completely, like, oblivious to what Darcy and Caroline were doing, like, keeping him away from Jane. But he also, like, still loves Jane and is thinking about her.
0: He was counting down the days. He was like, it was the 24th of November. Yeah, the way
2: he's like, it has been exactly three months since I've seen you last. And we were at the wonderful, I've never had a better time in my life. Like, everything was great then. And like that part always made me feel like much more happy when Jane and Bingley eventually get together because he abandons her. And like, they kind of say it in this book or in this movie, I think, but in the book they leaves Jane open for ridicule. Like, oh, she almost had the man, but couldn't secure him like type of thing, like leaves her open to a lot of gossip. And so that was like a really big faux pas that they just, you know, not seeing that part. You don't get it, but it doesn't. It doesn't matter in the movie sense. I'm going to try to be a little bit more chill about it. No,
1: be as mean as you want to be because, like, first of all, Joe Wright's going to be fine. He can't hear you from <laughs> You're listening to this podcast, Joe. Uh, you can come on if you'd like. And also, like, you're correct that it doesn't uh, give us that little insight into how Bingley's feeling. I think they try to accomplish that later by having him apologize, but I think we'll, we'll get there later. I did miss him. I did miss him a little, but I, I do think it's one of those two-hour cuts that does make more sense than cutting the entire Wickham plotline. Yes,
0: that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I watched Darcy during this scene and I thought that it was pretty cute because his whole face changes when he's around Georgie. He's, like, much lighter and happier and less stressed. And I, I did applaud him on his flirting in this scene when Georgiana was like, oh, but you play so well. And Lizzie's like, oh, Mr. Darcy exaggerated. And he's like, no, I, I said you played quite well. And she's like, oh, quite well is not very well. I'm satisfied. And then they just stared at each other for a little bit. <laughs> and then he got to bond with Mr. Gardner a little bit over fishing. Though so they did, again, take out the entire Mrs. Gardner thing, which I was upset about. Then they go back to the inn. And as soon as they get there, Lizzie gets a letter from Jane. So they all go up to the room <laughs> and we get Mr. Gardner on a bench. And we have Mrs. Gardner on a chair and we have Darcy pacing back and forth. And then we have Darcy sit down. But then he immediately like jumps out of the seat because Lizzie has come in. And then she's like, (gasps) (laughs) she's (laughs) sobbing. And I just, so first of all, if we had made a big deal about Wickham, then this would be this big of a deal. However, I was surprised nobody was like, who died? Because she was so upset. Okay, so many questions. Yes. Why are they
1: tense before she runs in sobbing? Right. I
2: assume that she read the letter and they could hear her sobbing and they're waiting for her to come out and say what's in the letter. The problem is why is she opening and reading mail when she has company? Mm. The whole thing is like in the book, she asked the gardeners, can you Go walk for a little bit so I can read these because I really want to read these. And Mr. Darcy's not there. Nope. So she opens them in solitude and then is shocked and then has to explain, which would make more sense if, like, you saw the gardeners and Darcy coming up from somewhere and then you hear her, like, you see them come into the room as opposed to them just, like, holding court while she has a breakdown. Also,
1: Kira Knightley got nominated for an Oscar for this role. She got nominated for best actress and this is where she loses me entirely because what is she doing
0: here she just runs in screams and then runs out (laughs) what she's doing with her face is like not to bash on her performance but what she's doing with her face is like what you do when you need to fake cry like she's tensed up her whole upper half of her face and then her bottom half is like It was too much. Not even a good fake cry. Like, no, she seemed kind of happy when she first came in. She was like,
2: <gasps> I just want you guys to know that this movie was nominated for Best Actress, yes. Best Original Score, which I'll grant them yep. mm-hmm. Best Art Direction, and Best Costume Design. And that is the most offensive thing I've ever heard in my entire life.
1: Was it not nominated for Best Director?
2: No, Art Direction.
1: Oh, weird. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, art direction and score I can get behind yes. costume design and Best Actress now.
2: Nah. So offensive. I'm trying to figure out who won that year, but, or well, who else was nominated, but, like... For
1: costume designer for actress? For
2: actress, because I feel like maybe it just wasn't a strong year. Like, sometimes it's just, like, they're not...
1: I, I think it actually was a strong year. I remember that happening in a bunch of book stands being like, how dare they? Yeah, it was... No, no, no. It
2: was Judy Dench and Miss Henderson Presents, Felicity Huffman in Trans America, Keira Knightley, Charlize Theron in North Country, and Weese Witherspoon and Walk the Line, which Reese. Totally deserved the Oscar,
1: and, and she won for that one.
2: Yeah, she won. Reese been won. Brokeback Mountain was that year. I guess there wasn't a there wasn't a lead actress in Brokeback Mountain. Yeah,
1: I think uh, Michelle Williams got nominated for Best Supporting in Brokeback, but yeah, this is about as far as my Oscar trivia knowledge goes. I'm just like, yeah, good night, good luck. There were there were other yeah, there there were definitely performances that could have taken over for. And I don't think her whole performance is as bad as some people think. I do think that it didn't deserve an Oscar. No. No. No.
0: The score, however, did the score win?
2: No, it was just nominated. It didn't win. Okay. But I could see that's one of the things that when I get yelled at on Twitter, my relationship with this movie is I go on Twitter and I talk about how terrible it is and then people yell back at me and then I say I don't care you're wrong <laughs> but one of the things people bring up all the time is the score and I'm not a score person like it's something that I just like don't it doesn't stick with me I guess I should say mm-hmm. um *Brookback Mountain won for original score but I can see like there were moments when I was actually like watching this because we're gonna record and I'm trying to pay attention and I'm like I could see where this is important one of my best friends Played the theme song or something at her wedding. Like I can see oh. that. I can see it. Sure, beautiful. But this movie is beautiful gowns, nothing of substance. And even the gowns are not that beautiful. like that's you know. yeah,
1: I think that's a really, actually great insight into this movie and why it's controversial, which is that people have different priorities while they're watching it. Yeah. And if your priority is purity to the book, if your priority is getting every nuance of the story or capturing certain characters perfectly, this movie might not be your cup of tea. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if your priority is trying to watch sort of a chemistry laden romance with pretty aesthetics and a beautiful score and kind of get sunk into the world like that then it's more your movie. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one of my biggest complaints about it, and like you saying that can help me put it into words, is that they try to make Pride and Prejudice into a pure romance. And I've always read it as a social commentary on the options that women have at that time period and like the things in which you have to compromise or sacrifice to get as much happiness as you can. Like Jane Austen is a feminist icon, let's be honest. she's very realistic about the importance of money and comfort in that society as a woman and having some sense of like security and protection as a woman because you don't you're completely up to like who you marry happiness in marriage is a chance is what she says but like you know but you can be secure and you're going to eat and you're not going to be tossed aside so it's, it's very to me pride and prejudice is always a commentary on Lizzie Bennet, who wanted and was uncompromising and what she wanted in, in her life, which was happiness and marriage, because she saw her parents and she was willing to sacrifice or gamble against security. And Jane Austen being like, sure, but that's a gamble. You know, that's why we have Charlotte Lucas, who was like, this is first half thing, but their whole like argument fight about Mr. Collins, I thought was very weird. But like when, when Charlotte says, don't judge me, I'm an old maid. My options are dwindling and I have to really think about my future. And like, this is a a good option. He's he's not going to abuse me. I can relatively ignore him. You know what I mean? I pop out a couple of babies and then I get left alone and I'm taken care of. And like, that I think is completely pushed aside in this movie for Darcy and Lizzie romance. But it's not a really, it's really not a, very romantic. If you want a romance, you do freaking persuasion. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice is not like a super romantic. I mean, it's romantic, but it's not. It's not love conquers all. Oh, again, yeah, no, definitely not.
0: Because he's rich. Because it's not like she's marrying a poor man that she loves. She's marrying someone she loves who is super rich. She ends up getting everything.
2: Yeah, she wins. Like, she does like Jane Austen gives you the happily ever after in which like Lizzie gets everything. Yeah. How
1: convenient that he is just Wealthy and she wants him at
2: the same
0: time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this movie pushes their feelings for each other from the literal moment he walks in. They lock eyes and then she giggles. And it's like, all right, we know how this is going to end. Like, there's no enemies to lovers storyline here. They're just lovers. <laughs> so this is almost the end of the scene. But when Darcy finds out what's happened to Lydia, they made it so he was super concerned. Unlike the whole thing in the book where she thinks that he is done with her now. He's like, oh, my God, this is totally my fault. I should have exposed Wick. I'm like, ah! And then she's like, no, no, it's my fault. And he says that in front of the gardeners. Yeah. they all know. So everyone knows. So it's not like there's any confusion about what he feels. But he says that. Then he's like, "Um, I'm going to go. He leaves. The gardeners are like, OK, we have to go now. And they the music goes and then they get in the carriage and it like ricochets along the side of a cliff that looks super dangerous and it's very horror film-esque and then (laughs) that is the end of that scene which also seems like a good place to stop this episode and come back for the final half final uh, uh, eighth of the movie (laughs) oh boy so Robin, thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. And I'm, I'm loving hearing your takes on this movie. Do you want to tell the people where they can
1: find you or roast you for your hot takes on this movie? <laughs> yes,
2: yeah, so you can find me at blackgirlscreate.org. Um, you can roast me personally at Robin, R O B Y N, Robin underscore rambles uh, on Twitter. I think I'm Robin underscore rambles everywhere. I, I was Robin Ravenclaw for a very long time, but given circumstances, that makes I'm constantly sense. Consciously uncoupling. Um, but yeah, black girls create everywhere, and then you can easily find me from there.
0: Awesome! So that concludes this episode of Pod and Prejudice, listeners. Thank you for coming along for this ride, and until next time, stay proper
1: and find yourself a bust of Matthew McFadden.
0: <laughs> also, tell us if we're pronouncing that right or not. Please do. We don't know. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our beautiful show art is designed by Torrance Brown. To learn more about our show and our team, you can check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you like what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com podandprejudice to see how you can support us, or just drop us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.